2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 8, and we'll look at uh, all the way through chapter 9, verse 5. Today, we're in the second week where we're going to be talking about something that is everyone is going to be super excited about, giving. Giving. Am I excited about that? No. Oh, good. Can't wait to see how that shows up in the offering. I'm just playing. I don't even, I don't even count it. Just want to let you know that. Um, giving, historically, is one of those issues that we don't talk about a lot because oftentimes it gets abused in churches. Uh, we can turn on Christian television at probably any point of the day and see the guy who's in a $4,000 suit with gold cufflings and sitting on a golden throne and begging you for money so that he can give to poor people when we know that it goes to him and his wife who has a huge Marge Simpson haircut or whatever. And uh, we get this stigma about it. And I I think there's even a stigma uh, in our church about it. Uh, We have a lot of younger people. um, And we've seen even how giving has translated over through generations. Baby boomers, uh, they could be guilted into giving. And so they would give based on guilt. Uh, We see Generation X, my generation. Uh, We had to give for a certain cause. As long as we knew where the money was going, we felt more comfortable to give. Millennials don't want to give because they feel like somebody's going to take advantage of them. And they don't want to be taken advantage of. And so all we have all these stigmas working against us, we have to uh, carefully handle this issue. And maybe we have even an integrity we've done so as a fault, to a fault. However, um, the great thing about preaching through books of the Bible, which is what we do at Integrity, we are going to touch on giving because it's in the Bible. And when you preach through books of the Bible, you have to handle certain passages and you have to handle them as they come up. And so listen, you can't get mad at us for giving. For, for talking about giving, because it's in the book, 2 Corinthians, and we're walking through it verse by verse, and so you can just be mad at God on this one, because it's not like we woke up like this past week and said, now let's talk about giving. It's in 2 Corinthians. Not only that, it's a very important issue, because it's one of the ways in the New Testament that a believer displays the grace of God in their life, and, and the way that they do that is how, show how generous they really are. And so generosity is really an outcome of, of a person person really understanding and grasping the full weight of the gospel. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, is really how the gospel motivates generosity in our lives. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, chapter 8 briefly and talk about how the motive of generosity should come from the gospel. And then in chapter 9, we're going to see how practically it should play itself out. So let me bring you up to speed on what's happening here. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth about some pretty weighty issues. He defends his message. He defends his ministry. He defends, he defends his motive. But now what Paul does starting in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians is he kind of takes a break from that. And he, he, he switches gears and he begins to talk about uh, how the church of Corinth needs to start giving generously to help other churches that are spread out through the region that are struggling. The other churches that are suffering and they need financial support so that they can continue to staff it with elders and qualified preachers and leaders who can lead it even through suffering. And so what Paul begins to do in in chapter 7 is he begins to switch gears and and try to move them into some, some sort of housekeeping in order to get them to give sacrificially and generously. But he doesn't want to do it just because he asks them to do it. He doesn't want them to do it based on guilt or motive or 
impure motives. In fact, what he begins to do is show them that the gospel needs to steer all of their decisions, including the way that they give. And what I love about this is although the, this relationship between Paul and this church, Corinth, there's been some tension in the relationship, what chapter 7, 8, and 9 proved to me is that he still sees them as incredible partners in the gospel. He still sees them as a valuable asset to the kingdom of God, even though there's all kinds of mess happening in the church. And in fact, he's trying to say, listen, even though we've got issues, I still want you guys to be generous. I still want to partner with you for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul doesn't want them to give out of obligation. Rather, his response is going to be grace. And Josh uh, talked about that uh, in a great deal last week. And instead of giving them a sort of guilt trip to give or even a plea to give, he just gives them an example. And as he does this in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, he gives them an example of another generous church. He talks about the church of Macedonia, who the church of Macedonia was one that they were the most, they were one of the poorest mentioned churches in the New Testament. They were severely poor and severely persecuted, yet they were one of the most generous churches. And Paul uses them as an example to sort of motivate um, the, the Corinthians to give. And what he begins to do now is he's going to show them, the, the church of Corinth, how they got that motivation to start with and what example they used in order to, to land where they were. So start in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, I say this not as a command. It's very important that you understand that word. I'll explain it. He says, but I say it not as a command, but to prove my earnestness of others that your love is uh, love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty might become rich. And in this manner, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also a desire to do it. Now, right out of the gate, Paul addresses this issue of generosity not as a command, rather out of what? The gospel. And how does he talk about the gospel? Well, he describes the person and work of Jesus Christ, what Christ has done. So he says, okay, Christ who was rich. What's he referring to there when he says he, he, meaning Christ was rich? He's referring to the pre-existence of Christ. Paul actually captures this issue in multiple letters. One explicitly in uh, Colossians chapter one, verse five, he says, he, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's the way he describes Christ. He's the firstborn over all creation. Jesus Christ lived at and sat at the right hand of the Father before he came and lived among us on this earth. And so he says, Christ, who was rich. What did Christ do? Uh, he left his rightful throne. And, and Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 8, he became poor for us. Paul captures this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then he says it in, in 2 Corinthians 8, so that, so that by his poverty you might become rich. How do we become rich? Well, Paul captures it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. He says, but he, meaning Jesus, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul is giving him, them, the church of Corinth, the greatest example of generosity that they could ever see, and that is Jesus's sacrificial life and death. And so what he begins to do is he says, not only, uh, in 2 Corinthians 8, not only to do this work, not only to give, but I want you to have a desire to do it. I want the gospel to give you, in the person of work in Christ, looking to Christ as our example, that to give you a desire to give more. And what Paul is saying is the gospel should be the most genuine motivation to love others ex- explicitly dealing with generosity. And so something you should know about me, um, I am not a fan of Valentine's Day. Part of it is because I have red hair and people with red hair don't like wearing red, all right? But I'm not trying to, this is me personally, so I'm not trying to impose my view on everyone here, but Valentine's Day to me feels like a law. Yeah, you have to buy flowers or you have to buy candy. I don't like like the rebel part of me, I don't like someone telling me I have to do something at a certain time. So maybe that's like some heart issues there, but probably. And so it becomes sort of this obligation. I don't, I, what I mean is I'm not trying to say I don't like giving gifts. You can ask my wife, I love giving gifts. I love surprising my wife. I love being creative. I love uh, loving my wife in that way. It's one of her love languages is gifts. I want to give her gifts, but I don't want to do it when everyone tells me I have to do it. And by the way, I'm blessed with an awesome wife who also thinks the same thing. So if I come home and say, baby, I got you red flowers and a red heart chocolate box, it doesn't carry the same weight. It does, it's not as genuine. She's like, oh, great. You just do what every, all the other clowns in the world do for their wives. No, what she wants is out of the blue. I planned a date night. I'm taking you to this restaurant. I got you this gift because I heard you talking about it. Or I searched the history online. I saw what you've been looking at online. And I purchased that thing that you like. Or I just told you to buy it because you know where to get it. And that's where the surprise comes from. And so, like, that's where it comes from. But, but see, so she likes the genuine love, not the forced love, the expected love that comes from the law. And by the way, that's exactly what the Lord wants from us. He wants genuine love from us. He doesn't get the glory he deserves because he created us and gave us a bunch of rules and obligations and says, okay, if you do those things, I get glory. No, he wants us, what makes the Lord happy and where he gets glory is when we do things out of a genuine love for him. He gets glory when our desires emulate him. Parents, let me ask you this. What's better? When your kids do something because you make them or your kids do something because they really want to? You say, well, my kids do neither. <laughs> and that may be so. But what makes you happy? What makes you happy as parents when our children do something because they love us and they know that we love them. And so what do we do when our kids do that on the once a year when that happens? We say, we celebrate it. We applaud them. We even reward them. 
and we try to get them to do that again. Hey, I wanna celebrate this. You did this on your own. Let me reward you so you can be reminded to do it more because it's a good thing that we love each other in this way. And so Paul kind of does the same thing. Paul has seen this generosity in this church and he's applauding them for it and he's trying to applaud them for it because he's trying to get them to do it again and he's actually trying to get them to do it better. And you're gonna see this in 2 Corinthians 8, starting verse 11. It says, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and, you're, and, you're, and you burden, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, to summarize what Paul said because of time, he says, you've been blessed for a reason, and the reason why you've been blessed, Corinthians, is so that you would in turn bless others. As messy of a church that Corinth was, with all the issues that Paul had to address, one of the areas that Paul saw grace in their lives was their generosity, but not only that, Paul, not only does he encourage them to do that, but he's actually going to encourage them to do that more. In, in verses 16 through 24, Paul is actually going to be talking, telling the church of Corinth, listen, I'm going to ask you to, to give generously to the church of Achaia, which is a church that is struggling greatly. They're trying to labor for the gospel. They're suffering and in order to do that, I'm going to send you Titus, who is a guy I discipled. He's another pastor that they knew of who had visited with them. He's actually one of the, uh, one of the deliverers of uh, several of his letters between them and him and Corinth. And then Paul not only sends Titus, but he sends two other pastors. He doesn't say their names, um, but he says they're famous pastors. They're gifted preachers. And so Paul's kind of laying on the guilt. He's saying, okay, I'm going to send you Titus, someone you know, but I'm also going to send two of these really trusted communicators that are going to go there and labor for you and preach for you. And I want you to give big to impress these guys. It's kind of odd for Paul to say that. And you feel like, well, that seems like guilty language. Wait till you get in chapter nine. Start in verse one. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. For I know that your readiness of which I boast uh, about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers, so he's talking about Titus and these other two, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said, you would be. Otherwise, if, Macedo- if some Macedonians come with me, and find that you are not ready, we will be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. This is a strange way to communicate and ask for giving. But Paul's saying this, I am sending you three of my best friends to come and take this offering for you. And I am telling the church of Macedonia how big you are going to give 
And so don't embarrass me. Don't embarrass me in front of the Macedonians. Don't embarrass me in front of three of my best friends. Please don't do that. Give me bragging rights for your behalf. Let them know that, man, I discipled you well. Man, you understand the gospel well. Let them know that. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where you've bragged about something and you're afraid that it won't pan out in the way that you thought. Anyone here ever brag about something like that? So you're ECU fans. That's good. I was hoping there were some ECU fans here. Every year, what do we do? We're going to win it all, right? We're going to be ranked. First week, we lost to, you know, a community college. Oh, no, you know. How did UNCW win? They don't even have a team yet. You know, it's just like, what happened? And then we, we lose some confidence, and we kind of lose our bravado a little bit. And then, you know, on Sunday morning, after that big loss, like, it's hard to engage you on Sunday morning because you're so down and depressed about it. And, but, but what happens when they're winning? We're on top of the world, man. We're just worshiping God. We're giving sacrificially. You know, it's just like this sort of idol um, that we have. But we want those bragging rights. We want that pride that's about Greenville. It's about ECU. And Paul has pride in these churches. Paul wants to see these churches expand and grow. And Paul wants to see this church generous and give to more churches so that the gospel would continue. And Paul's saying, listen, don't embarrass us. Don't embarrass us by your lack of generosity. Be generous. Emulate Christ in this way. And to show that Paul is not driving them with guilt, he communicates this very well and prefaces it very well in verse 5. He says, so, that, so I thought that it was necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so it may be ready as a, what's the word? Willing gift, not as an exaction. Willing, uh, some of your translations might actually say blessing. And verse 5 is evidence that Paul is not trying to guilt these believers to give. He's, it's really a preference to understand the rest of the chapter. And he wants them to give not out of guilt, but he wants them to give out of a willing heart, a heart that wants to bless. And if you remember what Josh talked about, if you were here last week in, in chapter 8, Chapter 8 and 9, you may not know this, but they talk about grace more than any other place in Scripture. More than any other section in Scripture, chapter 8 and 9 are about, say the word grace more than any other place. You know what's interesting about chapter 8 and 9? They are also the most explicit about giving than anywhere else in the Bible. So the most explicit place about giving is also the most explicit place about grace. Isn't that interesting? Why is Paul doing that? Because he's trying to show them this is the motivation by which you give. The gospel is what motivates you to give. And even later on in the text, we're going to see each one must give what he's decided in his heart. And he's not to give reluctantly or under compulsion. He's to be giving cheerfully and generously. And so this is the idea that Paul's capturing. And what you often hear, though, tragically, from Christian culture is not this. How do we motivate people to give in Christian culture? We use a T word. 
we say tithe. And we say, we want you to give, and here's how you do it. You look at your annual income, you take out a calculator, and you say times 0.10, times 10%. And then that's what you give, and that is how you honor the Lord. Now, is that biblical? Well, what does the tithe mean? And it's very interesting that Paul in one of the most explicit places in Scripture where you give in the New Testament, he doesn't mention it at all. The other place that Paul mentions this is 1 Corinthians 16, where he talks about giving. He doesn't mention tithing at all. So what do we do with that? Well, Integrity Church, we don't teach the tithe because we don't believe that it is the motivator by which you give. We would say, as Paul just said in God's word, that the gospel is the motivator by which we give and display generosity. And so let me show you why we land there, okay? I'm going to show you tithing in the Old Testament versus what Paul just said in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The first place that tithing is mentioned in the Bible is a very strange place. You may not know that. It's very strange. It's in Genesis chapter 14. So let's go ahead and turn to Genesis 14. Hold your place in 2 Corinthians 9. Flip over to Genesis 14. Let me give you the context of what happened. Genesis 13, we're told about a man named Abram who has this nephew named Lot. And they kind of part ways over some issues. We're not exactly sure. But Lot ends up in a town where he's basically held hostage. And in this town, it's called Sodom. Lot is held captive in Sodom. And Abram hears the bad news. And what Abram does, he gathers 300 soldiers to go in and try to rescue his nephew Lot in Sodom. And what you find, Abram is like a beast when it comes to war. Because he and his 300 men, they wipe out all of these men in Sodom and they kill them and they get to, their, to his nephew Lot and it becomes a successful rescue mission. And what would happen in those times if you were to wipe out a nation or wipe out an army or wipe out a city, you would have spoils of war. You'd have money left over. You'd have, uh, you'd have uh, weapons left over. You've had cattle and uh, uh, animals left over. And so the question then was, okay, Abram takes this to the Lord and says, what should I do with the spoils of war? And the Lord, and he makes this promise to the Lord. You see it in uh, Genesis chapter 14. Look in verse 17. After his return to the defeat of Keir Latimer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to the valley of Sheva. This is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out the bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God the most high, possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands and Abram gave him a tenth which is a tithe of everything isn't that interesting this is the first time the tithe is mentioned in all of scripture it wasn't that Abram was commanded to give 10% of his annual income no 
he's commanded to give 10% of the spoils of war. Can we agree this is not a good place to start? If we were to apply this today, and I said to you this morning, hey, if you were to go kill lots of people this week and steal their money, that's fine. Just make sure 10% comes back to the church. Can we agree that that's not a good place to start or a good biblical principle to apply? At least there. What's the other point that it shows up? Well, it shows up later in Genesis, in Genesis 28, with a man named Jacob. Jacob is a patriarch in the Old Testament, and Jacob is actually trying to make a deal with God. And this is what it says in Genesis 28, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and I will keep and will keep me in this way that I should go I'll and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace then the Lord shall be my God and the stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house and uh, of all that you've given me I will give you a, a full tenth to you so this is what Jacob just said God if you give me a year of good clothes and good food, I will repay you back 10%. Is that a good heart? No. It's like me saying, God, if you give me free Chick-fil-A and Outback Steakhouse gift certificates and a shopping spree at the mall, then I will take 10% of that and give it back to you at the end of the year. Is that a good motive? No. It's bribing God. It's making a deal with God. And so here's the first two places where tithing happens in the Old Testament. Spoils of war and bribing God. That's where it shows up. And where's the other place it shows up? And this is where most people actually go when they talk about the tithe. They talk about it from Malachi chapter 3. In Malachi chapter 3, the context of Malachi chapter 3 is... Um, where the prophet Malachi is rebuking the Israelites for not bringing their tithe, their 10% to the temple. And they were being rebuked in this way because they were really disobeying the old covenant law, God's law. Um, to understand what they were actually, what was actually happening in Malachi though, we have to understand what the law is. The law was given to Moses in Mount Sinai. Moses was a prophet who led God's people out of captivity, and God's people in Israel would be a picture of what we would be later in the, in the New Covenant era, the church. And so Moses is given the Ten Commandments, or the law. And most of us know the law based on the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments really is a summation of the entire law. The law actually has 600, there's actually 613 laws to comprise of the law. So we think of the Ten Commandments, it's just a summary of those 613. Some of those 613 deal with tithing. But we can't assume that tithing is just 10% of your income. Because that's actually not what the law says. And that's the misunderstanding. Most of the time when people talk, talk about the tithing, they say, well, the law says it's just 10% of your income. That's actually not what the law says. The law says a lot more than that. There's three ways that the law actually separates the issue of tithe. Three primary ways. There's a lot of layers to it, but I'm just talking about the three primary ways. First of all, the law talks about there was a general tithe, 10% of your income, 
that was supposed to go to the Levite priest. And that's found in Numbers 18. You're actually supposed to give 10% of your animals to the Levites as well. Uh, that's that's uh, number, uh, Leviticus 27. And so they had, you would have, if you were an Israelite, you would have to give 10% of your uh, animals, 10% of your income just to the priest that, that would uh, look over the tabernacle. You were, everyone was required to do it. Not only that, but this is also what the law says. There was a festival tithe. And a festival tithe is, is strange because it, um, it was a, there was a general tithe that went to the priest, but there was also a festival tithe where uh, Israel, all the festivals that they celebrated throughout the year, like one would be like the, we all know is like the Passover it was sort of like a party planning committee fund that you that 10% of your income would go to this fund so that Israel could continue to have these parties and celebrations and whatever was left over it would also go to the priest so that they can continue to function so it was almost like they function almost like a government and so you have 10% going to the levite priest 10% going to festivals, math majors, what are we up to? 20%. Good. All right. Wow. No math majors here. They're at the nine. They shut up early. Um, what's the next one? The next one is not only do you have 10% going to the priest, 10% going to festivals, but every third year was an additional tithe, 10%, that was given to the poor. And this is found in Deuteronomy 14. Every third year, you were required to give to the poor. And, and what this would look like is God is forcing the Israelites to be charitable. And the reason why that was because Israel as a whole was a non-believing people. There was a remnant of believers within Israel, but as a whole, they're non-believing people. So how do you motivate non-believers to give and to be generous? You legislate them. You tax them. You make them give. And that is what happened. So every third year, so if we were to break that down, divide that by three, that would be uh, 3.33% annually. So what are we up to? Well, we have, we look at the chart here, 10% priests, 10% festivals, plus 3.33% to the poor What is a tithe in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament? 23.33%. If you were an Israelite, you weren't just to give 10%, and that's it. It's 23.33%. That is what a tithe was. So listen, if you are in a church that says, we teach tithing here, ask them if it's 23.33% or 10%, because biblically, it should be 23.33% to obey the law. And so I tell you all of that because I want you to give 23.30. I'm just joking. I don't. I don't. I tell you all of that because I want you to see the difference. First of all, I want you to know what the law says, but I also want you to see the difference of what Paul communicates here because what Paul communicates here is not that. Paul doesn't communicate the law. Paul had every opportunity to communicate the law, He could have done it in 1 Corinthians 16. He could have done it in 2 Corinthians 8. He could have done it in 2 Corinthians 9. He didn't do it. He actually did the opposite. He says, you should give 
out of what is in your heart? What is your desire to give? Why does he do it that way? What does he use as a motivator? The gospel, not the percentage, the gospel. And what Paul is saying is this. In the Old Testament, you had to give whether you were motivated to or not. If you were an Israelite, you were taxed to give, and you had to whether you wanted to or not. But Paul is now saying if you are a believer who is made new in Christ, you actually want to give. You, if you're a believer in Christ, you were born at war with God. You were born greedy. You were born wanting to take everything in this world for yourself. And he's saying, if you're a believer who's made new, your desires now change and your desires are to be generous and to give and to love and to care for others and to see the gospel reach the nations. That's what you want to do because you have a new heart and you love God. So now you don't give because you have to. You give because you want to. That's what the gospel should do in your life if you're really a believer. Paul calls it a willing gift in 2 Corinthians 9. Later on, he's going to say, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. So the person in Christ doesn't have to have a percentage because the person who's in Christ doesn't need a percentage. This person who has a new heart has been challenged by the gospel. And if we were to sit there and think about just specific areas in your life that don't require laws, but you just do them because you love the Lord. Let's just think about, for instance, sharing the gospel. Why do you share the gospel? Do you share the gospel because the Bible says you should share the gospel to six people every day, and if you don't, you're in sin? No, you don't do it that way. The Bible doesn't say it that way. Why do you share the gospel? You share the gospel because you love Jesus and you love other people and you don't want to see them die and go to hell. So you share the gospel. Think about reading the Bible. When, when I lead someone to Christ or see someone become a believer, do I have to say, here's how many times you should read the Bible every day. And here's the time that you do it. And when you do it, make sure you take out a prayer rug and you face Integrity Church at 2725 14th Street in Greenville and make sure you face that direction and pray this many times a day. No, we don't make a law out of it. We just say, we just do what the Bible says. What does the Bible say about uh, reading the Bible and prayer? It says, pray without ceasing. It just tells you what the Bible does. It doesn't even actually tell you when to pray. We just see Jesus prays in the morning. You're not a morning person. That's fine. It doesn't tell you when to pray. Or when to read the Bible. You can do it anytime you want. If you love the Lord, you're going to want to do it. That's the point. And it's the same point of giving. And sometimes people will say, well, man, if you don't preach the tithe, man, people aren't going to give. Really? You don't trust the Holy Spirit's work in believers' lives? You don't trust that the gospel is going to motivate people to give? It does. Just like it motivates believers to do everything else that is against their flesh. Sharing the gospel, reading the word, praying fighting the sin that's in our life, fighting lust of our heart, fighting the idolatry of our heart, we're going to because we're believers. It's the same thing with giving. If you're a believer, you're going to want to give. You're going to want to do it generously. You're going to want to do it sacrificially and cheerfully. And so if you're not willing to give in these ways, if you're not willing to give generously, sacrificially, 
cheerfully. What does that say about our heart? What does that say about our treasure? So this morning, my questions are this. What is your motive to give? Do you give in a way that shows genuine sacrifice? Do you give in a way that shows generosity? Are you afraid to give because you treasure other things? And so this morning, if you're here and you're not giving at all, I don't tell you that to shame you. I just tell you that in the same way that I would say if you're not sharing the gospel, if you're not reading the Bible, if you're not praying, what's going on in your heart? Where are your idols? Maybe you're not, maybe you're not giving like you could. Maybe you're just giving 10%, but you could give a lot more. Maybe you could even be more generous because you just love the Lord, but maybe you're just bragging in the 10% because you feel like that's what God wants. No, no, God wants everything. God wants your heart. God wants your life. There's a reason why Jesus didn't come and give 10% of his life. Jesus gave all. He gave himself on the cross. And what's required of us, we give ourselves back to him. We give our life back to him. And so if you're here, you're challenged to give this morning, let me challenge you with this. Don't be motivated by guilt. Don't be motivated by the law. Be motivated by the cross. That's how Paul motivated believers to give. The cross is what motivated believers to give in the New Testament. And the cross should motivate us to give because we look at the person and work of Jesus Christ who once was rich but became poor for us so that we would become rich in him. And so now our lives are about the same thing. We as Americans, we're rich. And so what do we do with our riches? What do we do with our wealth? What do we do with our possessions, our gifts, our talents, our everything? We live our lives sacrificially. We become poor so that others would become rich and so others would see the beauty of the gospel. That's what God wants from us. He wants our hearts. And so might we, as Integrity Church, approach this area of our life as a willing sacrifice to our God? Might we be what Paul is urging the church at Corinth to be, a generous people that really wouldn't embarrass, wouldn't be an embarrassment, but a blessing? Might Greenville, when they look at Integrity Church, see our generosity, and by seeing our generosity and our sacrificial lives, might they see and cherish the gospel more? Might that be us this morning? God help us. Let's pray.